Good evening, everyone. This is Catherine Lambrecht, Chicago Foodways Roundtable. Uh, I'm happy to announce that the Chinese American Museum of Chicago is finally opening their exhibit, Chinese Cuisine in America, Stories, Struggles, and Successes. Uh, this is something that got pandemic delayed, like a lot of things. And so uh, after more than a year, it's finally happening. And uh, I hope to see it this weekend. Um, in, in advance of our program tonight, I just want to recall um, Kevin Pang, uh, formerly of the Tribune, now with America's Test Kitchen, uh, wrote an article in the New York Times about six years ago. And it was titled, My Father, the YouTube Star. Kevin says, why, I asked during one of our weekly phone conversations, do you want a show on the Food Network or something? And he goes, you really want to know? My dad said in Chinese, your mom's great-grandmother used to cook amazing Shanghai Z food for her. She would dream about it. But when your mom was finally old enough to ask for the recipes, her great-grandmother had already developed dementia. She couldn't even remember cooking those dishes. The only thing your mom left was the memory of her taste. And we're afraid that if you wanted to eat your childhood dishes and one day we're no longer around, you wouldn't know how to cook it. In a sense, this is the, the people today from walks of life are kind of in a similar position, except they started far earlier and they've been documenting a quite a range of dishes. And I truly admire what they've been doing. Um, Walks of Life was founded in 2013 as a quest to document one family's history through food and has become a popular online resource for Chinese cooking in English, recording generations of recipes for millions of home cooks. I truly admire what they're doing, and certainly I I have the same reverence for older recipes, and you know spend my summers capturing those things. So anyway, I'm going to turn it over to Sarah and Caitlin. And by the way, we're now in the um, we're in the time lapse machine because I accidentally forgot to turn on the recorder for the introduction. So now we begin with them slightly in progress but you didn't miss very much. Thank you, bye-bye. It's ballooned into this ex exploration of um, Chinese cuisine in general, as we've, you know, we've posted over a thousand recipes at this point. And, um, you know, we've had to kind of think beyond what our own family, uh, like core family recipes were and like explore different, uh, different, um, I guess, iterations of Chinese food and different lenses on Chinese food, which is something that we'll talk about. Um, and something that was really, that was informed by our family's um, experience as Chinese Americans. Totally. So it's a good segue. Um, this is a little family portrait that we took for the cookbook. Um, and that's me and Sarah standing in the back. My dad, uh, my dad, uh, so a little bit more background on like who's who. Um, my dad was born in uh, New York. He grew up in upstate New York in the Catskills. And then my mom actually was born in 
um, Hubei and then sort of spent a lot of her formative years in Shanghai. So she came to the U.S. when she was 16. She met my dad when they were both in their early 20s. They got married and then we came along. Um, so yeah, I feel like it's a really wonderful combination of perspectives that kind of uniquely informs how we approach the blog and how we approach Chinese home cooking because we have, you know, me and Sarah as the two sort of like hapless Chinese American ABC millennials, American born Chinese. Uh, we have my dad, who's also an ABC, but kind of like from a different era, different generation. You know, his parents were uh, were immigrants to this country from uh, the Guangdong province. And then my mom is from a completely different province, but she has a, a very different perspective from the rest of us as, um, as, a, as an immigrant. So, And also another point to make is that my dad grew up cooking in Chinese restaurants. Um, so he cooked in the Catskills where he grew up. Um, his father, his father, his stepfather, and his grandfather were all chefs. Um, and they all, they cooked not just Chinese food, but also Western food in the Catskills and the Borscht Belt um, for, uh, I guess, tourists um, in the sort of like the height of the resort uh, culture of the Catskills at the time. Um, and so my dad brings like a lot of that sort of restaurant savvy um, mm -hmm. to, to the blog. And then also like a perspective on like, I guess what we would now call retro Chinese American cooking. Um, so he brings that perspective to the blog as well. Well said. <laughs> um, and yes, in case you all wondered, running a food blog with your family is just as challenging as one might expect, but also much more rewarding than it's challenging. So we do have a lot of kitchen squabbles, but here we are 10 years later it's in one it. piece. <laughs> All right. So, um, like, you know, like I said, we are really all four equal contributors. We each write our own recipes. Um, and in doing that, we try to weave in stories from our of our family told through food from generation to generation. So something that's always been really important to us with the blog is making sure that we were kind of sharing something personal with it as well. And that's as much for us as it is for anybody else who might see themselves in the same experience and I know like in the food world there's a lot of like jadedness over like sharing your story and like oh I just want to see the recipe and like well, that's fine we have a jump to recipe button um but I think for us like a DNA of the blog has always been like that storytelling and that like exchange between the generations and that's really like where what we find also personally um most rewarding too um, and that's definitely something we carried on into the creation of our book. Um, <laughs> this is a very gratuitous page, just some like <laughs> features of <laughs> the features that we've been, uh, that we've had over the past couple of years um, that, you know, if you're curious about us, you can read after this, but I won't say more than that. Um, this is our new cookbook, which is, you know, extremely exciting to write a cookbook with your family and have it be like a bestseller, no less. Um, it's called The Walks of Life, Recipes to Know and Love from a Chinese American Family. So what really we really wanted to do with the book, and we'll sort of like get into how this relates to the, the food ways of it all, 
is make it an extension of our blog, but go a little bit deeper on the the family stories aspect to really show how all of our sort of unique perspectives kind of came to be and how that informed our approach to Chinese home cooking. Uh, whoops. So today, I mean, so now we're getting into the crux of what our presentation today is about, and it's that um, Chinese home cooking right now is in a really exciting stage. I think that it's at this, uh, it's it's really evolved in the last 10 years that we've been doing this um, even. And um, I think that, you know, now, I, I think we have this confluence of um, Chinese American people like us, the millennial generation or younger generations who are realizing that it's really important to learn these recipes that our parents prepared for us growing up. And then also non-Chinese folks who are just love the food and are interested in learning about it. And I think we're seeing more and more people who are cooking these recipes at home than ever before and who are wanting to learn about the ingredients, wanting to learn about Chinese cooking tools. Um, and, you know, we see that in the traffic um, of our blog. And I think um, it's it's also just like th this idea that the, I the perception of Chinese food is broadening. Um, and that's really, really exciting, right? Like, I think, um, you know, 10 years ago, when we first started the blog, I remember my parents, my sister still like kind of like rib me about this. But, you know, when we would have like a recipe, like, like a dim sum tripe stew. This is like a, this is a dim sum classic. It is beef tripe um, braised. And my mom wanted to do this recipe. And I remember at the time kind of like chafing at it. I was like, oh, like, is anyone going to read that? Like, who's going to look at that? Like, should we do that? Is that too Chinese? Like, and that was me at, you know, 22 uh, thinking that. And, and now like, when my mom comes up to me and is like, I want to make this like really obscure soup. It's called For God Soup. It has all these like dried, random dried herbs and things in it. And I'm like, yeah, go for it. Like, of course, like we like, so I feel like our sort of, like, I feel more comfortable sharing these recipes. And I think it's because people, we've seen that people are interested in learning them and even if even if they might not be familiar with them, um, it's I, I think people are just interested to like read about like the cultural significance also of of some of these dishes. Yeah, read about it and cook it because last month we were we did a cooking class um, at the Wine and Food Festival in New York, and there was this guy, very nice gentleman who was not Chinese, and he was like, "Hey, really want to ask your mom about." making this sweet rice wine, which is like fermented rice. And you kind of like have to let it sit. And it's a, it's a very like obscure sort of a taste. And, oh, I see, I see Kathy. Maybe she has a, a rice wine experiment going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he was asking literally about that, which is like the, the ingredient to like cause the fermentation. The, basically. the, the brew, the distillers. Yes, yeast. thank you. Yes. And after the class she was like yeah he wanted to make it and she was just like pleasantly surprised that it wasn't just like Chinese people making it and that there's actually like a, a broadening of what people feel like they can make at home and what they want to make at home so anyway just a fun little tangent um 
Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, when we, our blog has obviously evolved and it's been, um, informed by the different aspects of our own experience as Chinese Americans. And I think, um, you know, your, your, whoever you are out there audience, like you, I think it's safe to say that you're interested in Chinese food. If you're on this, (laughs) if you're on this, uh, uh, presentation, but also like, I think that Chinese food is American food in a lot of ways, right? Like we all, like there's a Chinese restaurant in every town, in every city. And, you know, regardless of what your first experience of Chinese food was, like, there's not, like, we don't seek to kind of like, I guess, judge whether your experience of Chinese food was like, quote unquote, authentic or not. And I think that that, like, our sort of idea of what Chinese food to people it or what is to people is like, it's like nostalgia. If your experience of Chinese food was your own mom or your grandma or your dad's cooking, like, that's awesome. If your experience was restaurants, whether it was Americanized Chinese takeout, or like, maybe you had like a gem of like a Cantonese or a Sichuan restaurant in your town, um, or maybe you traveled in China, or, you know, maybe you just kind of like, learned about sesame oil one day and you thought oh sesame noodles like mm, like maybe that I'm not really sure what that is but like you know I think that all of these different entry points are equally valid um and it's important to kind of and it was important for us to acknowledge all of those different entry points because as you know for us growing up it was like we had we we had all of these experiences right like we had the experience of mom and dad's home cooking. We had the experience of eating out in restaurants. We eventually had the experience of traveling in China and uh, exploring different regional Chinese food ways. Um, And we had the experience of like, you know, seeing Chinese food from an outsider, like a quote unquote outsider's perspective or a non-Chinese perspective, which is to say like our friends growing up, um, you know, we grew up in a very like not the most diverse neighborhood in like sort of the latter half of like our high school years. Um, So, you know, and a lot of our friends like aren't necessarily the most familiar with a lot of this food that we grew up with. So I think that, um, you know, all of those different experiences inform how we see Chinese cuisine. And it's like, it's not, it's definitely not a monolith. It is very much, it is very nuanced and multifaceted. Right. And I'll say the So that's like from our perspective. And I'll say the flip side from the casual cook's perspective is, let's say like any one of these things are what would come to mind when you think of Chinese food. What we sort of like informally ask of our readers is to not be limited by that, right? It's like, don't be limited by the Asian noodle bowl that, you know, just has like sesame oil or whatever amalgamation of pseudo Asian ingredients. Like don't be limited by just thinking, oh yeah, Chinese food. And in China, I don't know what they eat and I have no idea. I just know like what's at my local takeout place, you know? So it's, it's our perspective sort of being extremely diverse, but then we also kind of want to bring other people into the fold, like regardless of 
which of these they might think of first to also kind of have a, that more broadly and, encompassing. And I think that that's the beauty of the blog and of the book, right? Is that, you know, the the goal is to have recipes that are familiar to you that will like, that you want to make that spark a memory for you. And then at the same time, like you're also there to you like, we have these other recipes that you can explore and like learn about and expand, um, you know, your perception of what Chinese food is. Totally. So as we've been saying, all of these angles and you delve deeper into any one of them are really just like one part of the story of Chinese food. So even if you're, you know, I think like for me, even as just like a Cantonese slash Shanghainese kid, like growing up in Jersey, like I over time have learned that Chinese food is so much more than even what I thought it was as a Chinese person, uh, let alone what somebody, you know, somebody who's not Chinese living in the Midwest might think. So I think, you know, this is just sort of like a snapshot of kind of like range of recipes that we have on the blog. So there's like Sichuan, there's Hakka, there's Xi'an inspired from the Shanxi province, there's Shanghainese, there's Cantonese. So there's also like more familiar things like Kung Pao Chicken, um, there's Hunan. So we really want to make sure that, you know, we are kind of capturing that like broad view of what Chinese food is. So this brings us to um the cookbook and what we were kind of thinking when we were developing it and develop, developing the recipes and figuring out what we were going to represent or what foods we were going to represent in the book. Um, and this is just kind of like a funny story. Like, so the tagline or the subtitle of the book is recipes to know and love from a Chinese American family. And that evolved from what my mom wanted, which was recipes you know and love. So she was trying to communicate through the subtitle of the book that like the recipes in this book are going to be familiar to you. You're going to open the book and you're going to you're going to see something that makes you feel nostalgic for maybe a, a taste memory that you once had. Um, and our editor <laughs> was quick to kind of like be like, well, you know, it's not necessarily going to be the case that everybody who opens this book uh, finds these recipes familiar. And so, of course, that was um, a helpful, a helpful reminder. reminder. Yes. <laughs> but I think it's also like because we tried to be representative of so many different aspects of our Chinese American experience, like, I think that there definitely there is something. The, the idea is like there is something in here that will be your entry point that you're going to recognize and that you're going to be like, oh, like, you know, I love that dish or I remember like eating that and or I remember this time that I had that at a restaurant or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's like there are also other recipes that you're that you may not recognize and that, you, you know, this book may be introducing you to. Um and that's why we kind of, we pivoted to like to know and love because, you know, these are recipes that are near and dear to us personally. Um, and we hope that they become part of your story and your family as well. Totally. And, you know, just an example from the book, um, you know, we really wanted it to be about 
having people incorporate those recipes into their repertoire in addition to finding ones that they might already be making or eating in some way, shape, or form. So these are like four recipes from our meat chapter. And this kind of just gives a sense of like the range that we tried to get in with the cookbook. So um, in the upper left, there's sasu, which needs no introduction. Um, a very popular, you know, Chinatown staple. You see the roast meats hanging in the window in Chinatowns across the country, um, around the world, really. Uh, then there is in the um, right-hand side, uh, Mongolian beef which, you know, kind of an interesting dish in terms of like, there's really nothing Mongolian about it. Uh, it's a much more Americanized dish, um, still deeply loved and delicious, frankly. Um, but, you know, kind of a, an example of a more Americanized take. Uh, that evolved from, I mean, so like there are different theories on how like the, the, the name Mongolian beef or Mongolian chicken evolved and it's you know some people say that it's like uh evolved from like a Taiwanese version of Japanese teppanyaki that in Taiwan they called it Mongolia so it's like all these different sort of like winding pathways to and then you know it arrives and here in the U.S. it becomes this you know crispy beef that's slightly sweet, sweet scallions <laughs> maybe a little bit of spicy like kick in there um and it's yeah like my sister said much loved and um it but it took that really winding path to get here yeah and the bottom two the one on the right is a just like a pepper like a, a farm style like pepper and pork stir fry which is kind of like what you might find like on a dinner table on an average night in like the Chinese countryside, like a very comforting, like what Chinese people call like um Tai, which is like country. It's like what's the direction? I don't want to mess up. It's like <laughs> farm they're, they're style. Chinese better than mine. Farm style food. Yeah. Um, so like we wanted to bring that element in because like that's like a lot of what we saw like when we traveled around China, like when my parents were living there. And then, like, the bottom left is a steamed pork patty, which is, like, a very, like, homey, a homey like, comfort food from, like, Cantonese home cooking. Like, when my, when a pork patty shows up on the table, like, my dad, who's Cantonese, just, like, is immediately transported to, like, his mom's kitchen from when he was a kid. So, like, all of these things, you know, went into how we wanted to create the book, which was, you know, understandably tricky because we started out with like, you know, a decree from our publisher of like, okay, a hundred recipes. So it's like, okay, how do we <laughs> boil uh, like our family's recipes up into like a hundred iconic recipes that are going to be represented in this book? But, you know, it was a fun challenge. And that was just like a little bit on the, the philosophy that we took to get there. Um. So, yeah, I feel like, you know, more on food ways. Another thing that we thought a lot about with the cookbook is, you know, in addition to this, I kind of stemming from, I guess, this idea of all these different entry points and perspectives on Chinese food, like what, what is authentic anyway? You know, a lot of I think food world, there's a lot of talk of like what is authentic and what's the best and what's ideal, you know, 
um, what is accepted wisdom versus stereotypes and and thinking yes thinking about that just to, as a way of being aware but also considering how those the food ways that kind of dictate all that are evolving so on this page we just have like some examples of things that we've noticed are changing about Chinese food um, in America and more broadly and in the home too. So, you know, when I think so much of American history has been, um, so much of a Chinese American history is uh, dominated by the initial Cantonese wave of immigrants. You know, these are the people who were working in like the, the, for like gold prospecting and building railroads and things like that. So they were really like, I guess it was, I think it was in the 1800s. Like those are the people that were laying the foundations of the Chinese communities in America. Um, and that's why so much of the food that we love and enjoy, and a lot of the names of the dishes too, are so influenced by Cantonese cuisine and Cantonese pronunciation. Like chop suey is, is a Americanized pronunciation of like mixed sort of like vegetables or just like a mix of anything in Cantonese and I'm not going to try and say it because I'm embarrassed at how poor my pronunciation is but um you know that was kind of like <laughs> dominant uh immigrant community for a long time but today when we look at immigration in America it's almost like Cantonese is a lot of that like second and third generation um, now there's new waves of Chinese immigrants from, frankly, all over who are bringing different cuisines to the country and kind of influencing this sort of a second wave broadening of what of how people think about Chinese food today, which is super exciting. But again, like a, a change from what, you know, we might have thought as authentic before through a more Cantonese lens versus whereas now it's it's much more varied. I'll take this next one because oh, I'm talking. Sure. I feel strongly about this. Okay. So, so this this next piece is this idea of having one like the one best version of a dish versus multiple interpretations of that same dish. And I think that early on when we started the blog and we realized that we had readers and you know readers who like trusted what we thought about what a dish or what a recipe should be. Um, we started to feel a lot of pressure, I think, on ourselves to come up with like the one version of that dish, like the I platonic ideal of Shanghainese braised pork belly, for example. And, you know, I think that what broke us out of that mindset was ironically going to China, living in China for a couple of years. So, like, so my parents lived there uh, from 2011 to 2014, and I was there from 2012 to 2014. So um, we traveled around, we ate uh, in restaurants, we ate in people's homes, we had, and we just were like floored, honestly, by the variation of the same dish. So you could order a uh, braised pork belly in Shanghai, like in a Shanghainese restaurant uh, that very much differed from a, a, a rendition at another famous Shanghainese restaurant. Um, and you see chefs trying to kind of put their stamp on that dish to make it unique in some way. And so for us, like we realized like, wow, okay, it's really not about, I mean, 
I guess when you use the word authentic or like you kind of like say that the dish is supposed to be X, you're kind of like cutting off that dip. Like when do you cut off the evolution of that particular dish? Like when does that like dish like stop evolving? And the answer is it doesn't. It continues to evolve. And so for us, when we seek to create a recipe, like I think that our approach now isn't to create like the one version, but to create our, like the version that best captures our memory of that dish or like the the sort right. of nostalgia factor of that dish. And that's what we aim to do with the cookbook because it was sort of a more personal journey of telling our family story. But on the blog, I think we do take more of like the anthropologist lens where it's like, okay, what, what are the versions of this dish that are, that already exist? Like there's multiple versions of braised pork belly, Hong Xiao Ro. There's multiple versions of, there's like an infinitesimal number of versions of dumplings. You mean an infinite, infinitesimal is small. Oh, well, <laughs> you just saw in real time, Sarah being an older sister. So there you go. <laughs> Everybody got their bunnies uh, worth tonight. Uh, so yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> Enough said. Um, so the next one on this page is like, kind of like, I'll cover these quickly so we can kind of move through, um, and get to some questions, but like, there's this, like the old way of doing things, which, you know, I think that that's, that's something that's important to be aware of and to respect and to cherish and to try to uphold as best as you can. Um, but then again, there are like new techniques, there's new tools, there's new tastes, you know, for example, like a really, probably, you know, everyone's caught wind of it by now is like salted duck egg yolk is a really like trendy new flavor in like the Chinese, <laughs> Chinese, Chinese circles. Yeah. And like in China, in Singapore, it's like huge in Singapore. There's like salted duck egg yolk, fried pumpkin sticks and potato and like potato chips there's like these like delicious like custardy buns made with salted duck egg yolk that's like a really new development as you know in really rich and frankly pricey ingredients that take a lot of time to make like salted duck egg yolks become more convenient um there are you know with me and sarah when we develop recipes there are techniques that we bring in to or tools that we bring in that you know just weren't around in like my in my mom's time like a you know mixing pork filling for shumai to get it really emulsified but using like a kitchenaid mixer like why not um so you know we kind of live a little bit more at that the intersection i guess of this one um, a couple more examples here, just like this idea of like MSG as the enemy. Like, I think that we've seen a lot of evolution around that. Like, you know, MSG is not, does not deserve the <laughs> maligning that it has gotten. And really, you know, I think where we're landing with it today, where, you know, the food community is landing with it today, it's just another spice in your cabinet. It's just another flavor enhancer. Um, another kind of accepted wisdom, I guess, or, or stereotype of the past was that, you know, Chinese food should be cheap and the best places are like little hole in the walls where, you know, everything costs like nothing. And I don't want to, I don't say that to, you know, knock down like mom and pops that, you know, probably are cheap and like are incredibly valuable to the communities that they're in. But I think that what the goal, like what the truth is, is that there's a broadening of like, yes, there's those like cheaper spots 
And then they're like really fancy and like ornate, like Chinese spots. And I think that was like one of the things that really like opened my eyes when we first went to China. It was like most of the meals that we were going to were like extremely elaborate and like beautiful and refined Mm -hmm. and uh, expensive, frankly. Not like in a way of like, you know, uh, completely inaccessible, but like it wasn't like, oh, yeah, we were always sitting down to like the local like mom and pop restaurant where, you know, you just kind of go on a quiet weeknight. Like if anything, there was a huge amount of like fancier venues for eating. So, you know, that kind of I think that's like a big stereotype in in America where, you know, Chinese food is kind of seen as like, oh, junkie or takeout and um that's definitely changing i think now in america as well with you know more a more wide range of chinese restaurants opening so yeah uh do you want to take this one yeah um so i think um just to kind of i guess continue the thought from the last slide it's um Chinese cuisine, I think, in the U.S. is also evolving due to just, like, how we, the evolution of how we eat. And I think that that is uh, universal, right? That doesn't just apply to Chinese cuisine, but also, like, just in our everyday lives, right? Like, you know, today we're seeing food trends around, like, gluten-free items, around plant-based eating, around... Um, so many other things. And I think with Chinese cuisine, it's like, it's, it's evolving just like that, right? Like, I, you know, um, my dad talks about his childhood. And, um, you know, just the sort of the, the difference in the availability of ingredients uh, from his day to today. So when he was a kid, he and his family would uh, drive from their home in Liberty, New York, um, in the Catskills, two hours down to Chinatown uh, in Manhattan. And they would make this monthly pilgrimage to get ingredients that they couldn't, you know, access where they were. And even then, like there were, even in Chinatown, they didn't have access to a lot of the things that we do today. So for example, like salted duck egg yolks, like you can buy in stores today, cooked salted duck egg yolks. You could buy raw salted duck egg yolks. You could buy just the yolks in vacuum packages. Whereas, you know, when my dad was a a kid, like his mother had to buy duck eggs. (laughs) She would buy (laughs) duck eggs and then she would have to make them herself. And then, you know, and then from there, she would make the various dishes with them. Um, And so just that, like that avail, the availability of ingredients, like, so uh, my dad actually, uh, for this slide, he contributed to the slide. So he, uh, you know, he talks about how, you know, in his restaurant days, when someone would order like X with Chinese vegetables, like chicken with Chinese vegetables, like pork with Chinese vegetables, beef with Chinese vegetables, the Chinese vegetables that were available were what you see here on the screen. Bok choy, bamboo shoots, water chestnuts, which were canned, snow peas, canned mushrooms, which weren't even Chinese, they were just button mushrooms, and bean sprouts. Um, And that was basically all that was available. Um, And 
particularly up in the, like, if they didn't want to have to keep like getting like fresh, pro like if they didn't want to get fresh produce uh, or couldn't get it delivered from, you know, from New York City. So I think today, um, you know, obviously, depending on where you live, these ingredients may not be super accessible. But I think with the advent of like online grocery shopping, especially in the last couple of years of the pandemic, um, we're, we've seen just in the last few years, like uh, stores like mom and pop shops in Chinatown will ship nationwide now. Um, you can buy various dry goods um, for a really fair price from, for example, Poing Hong in Manhattan Chinatown. They have a, an e-commerce site, poingonline.com. Um, and you can order basically anything non-perishable or shelf-stable from them, and they will ship it to you. Um, and so to just see the wide availability of ingredients, I mean, when we are um, answering comments and emails, we get emails from people all over uh, in, like, rural Montana, in, like, Idaho, in, like, Ireland, Ireland Scotland, Scotland around People who are, um, you know, either seeking out, like searching for these ingredients in, in metropolitan areas or who, you know, are doing exactly what immigrants did when they first came here, which was make do with what they had. Um, I think that your Gherkin story is really good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's like a very still admittedly a little bit hard to find of a Sichuan fermented, uh, preserved like salty vegetable. It's called suimi yatai. And it's a very, it's an ingredient that it's very hard to replace. However, there was a gentleman in Scotland who like emailed us and he was like, I really wanted to make your dandan dan noodles. It's like a, a key ingredient, dandan dan noodles, which is like a spicy uh, noodle dish. And he was like, I, I couldn't find the swimmy outside, so I just substituted minced gherkins. And I was like, that's brilliant. Like, all you want is that, like, sort of, like, pickly, salty bite. And I was like, that's, like, the perfect substitute. And I, I just thought it was yeah. hilarious and, I, and brilliant. And I think, um, yeah, like, another another example is, like, uh, a northern a Northern Chinese style um, sour cabbage mm, stew with one. pork belly. It's one of my favorite recipes. Um, my mom made uh, developed that recipe. And if you can't find sour or fermented Napa cabbage, you can use sauerkraut. Like sauerkraut works great. It's and arguably better. It, I wouldn't say it's better, well, but it works really I, well. I prefer it over, because I, so I recently <laughs> made it. I went to the Chinese store. I got the preserve, the pickled, is it Napa cabbage in a package. I was like, amazing, they have it. And then I made it and I was like, you know, I almost prefer the sauerkraut because it's like more sour. It's more sour, yeah. But, you know, that's just, yeah, it's a great example because there are sort of, it requires some creativity, but there are kind of like, tastes that you can mimic if you if you think about it yeah so long story short like there it's been amazing to see how many more ingredients have kind of made it over here and how like the access that we have um with online shopping and all that but also like I think that 
people are getting really creative in the kitchen. And if you can't access some of these things, like there are definitely, it's been, it's been amazing to have like this community at the walks of life of people who are sharing substitutions that they're making or, you know, workarounds that they have um, to make a recipe work, even if they can't find the particular ingredient that we called for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just a fun little sidebar on sort of the ever-changing foodways and like how people are kind of deal with what they have. There's, you know, when you think of Chinese American food, like you kind of depending on who you are, you go through the like Rolodex of classics or like stereotypical dishes, but there's actually a surprising amount of variation even within our country, um, you know, and we've discovered some of these, but just by happenstance of talking with readers where, you know, for example, like it's just some that we called out here is like shrimp with lobster sauce, which is like shrimp and it's kind of this like viscous sauce with like an egg sort of egg drop suspension in it. We always think of that sauce as white, but because we're from, you know, the New Jersey, New York area, but it turns out that in New England, when they think of that dish, they think of a brown sauce that also has like fermented black beans in it. And we were like, whoa, okay. Like (laughs) we had no idea that that was even a thing. Um, Another funny one is like, even I'm talking to like Chicagoans plus maybe a couple of New Yorkers, but like, you know, a common sort of retro pre-dinner freebie appetizer was like fried wonton strips, like in a little wooden bowl. And then you get the little thing of duck sauce and you dip them in and kind of like wets your whistle as you order your food. Like we just thought that was accepted wisdom because like we grew up with that. But then people in the comments were like, what are you talking about? Like, I've never (laughs) seen this. Um, another funny one is like almond chicken, which is like a fried, like whole, like chicken breast that's like sliced and then like topped with almonds and sauce requested by readers in Michigan and Ohio. And we were like, what? Yeah, we we had no idea what that was. And meanwhile, people are like, oh, this is the first Chinese food I ever tasted. And I love it so much. So yeah, craziness. And then um, in the West Coast, like we just posted a war wonton soup recipe, which is like a kind of like a combination wonton soup, if I speak in Chinese menu parlance, um, which is like wonton soup with like uh, sliced sasu and shrimp and chicken and pork and all, all the things. And some people were like, oh, my God, I love war wonton soup. And, you know, I live in California. It's definitely a West Coast thing. And other people are like, war who? What? Like, never heard of it. So, you know, a lot of this, like, evolution is ongoing. And it's, it's all dictated by local tastes. And again, like, even when you take it out of, like, the immigrant context, like, it's happening all around us, you know, in here in America. So, um, I won't belabor this slide, but essentially, like, what we aim to do um, what we've aimed to do with the blog and to is to really change perceptions around Chinese food and really bring it into the home sphere in a meaningful way. And the way that we've done that is, you know, bringing people like me and Sarah into the fold, like kids of Chinese families who really never thought that they'd be able to recreate the taste that they grew up with, um, non-Chinese food lovers who maybe were a little bit intimidated, Um, you know, kind of like helping them figure out 
you know, yeah, like you can totally recreate your favorite beef with broccoli at home and like, hey, maybe try this too. Um, you know, we also, I think, take, I will speak for myself. I take a lot of pride in seeing the like evolution of Mapo tofu because I feel like that's a dish that, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe like only a handful of people would have known about, but I feel like has really become like a new standard, like up there with like beef with broccoli. It's just like beloved by like Chinese people and non-Chinese people alike. Um, and yeah, so like an exciting consequence of that and something that we actively try to do is really just continue to like beat the drum of like all of the different cuisines from all of the different provinces and kind of just showcase them and, you know, that's definitely the goal going forward for the blog is for us to for us to expand our minds as well and our mm -hmm. um, experience of Chinese food because you know we definitely came at this from our family's perspective right Shanghainese Cantonese and then where we have traveled um, but we definitely have more traveling to do and more exploring to do so we're we're going to be sharing lots more recipes um, from lots of different regions of China and um and yeah keep going I remember early on in the blog's life my dad saying like you know one day we're gonna run out of stuff we're just gonna like run out of stuff to make and I was like really I was like I don't think so and now like we're like definitely not there's so much out there that we haven't tried and that we we haven't shared um and so we'll keep going yeah. So I see that the the chat box is a hot meeting place. There's <laughs> many questions. Um, so you want me to read the questions to you, or you... I mean, I can do well, it too. Okay, so, fine. I'll start... Can I ask a question? Yeah, yeah. actually, it will uh, it will uh, make somebody else in the audience quite happy. What did you have for Thanksgiving dinner? Oh my gosh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's such a loaded question. Well, oh, wait, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I'll tell you what I did if you will make you happier. No, no. Our Thanksgiving, well, first of all, this year, um, I would say that we were just all really tired of cooking <laughs> just from, you know, coming off of, because our book published or it came out on November 1st. And so we were doing a lot of cooking for blog events. We were doing a lot of blogging to kind of try to keep the lights on on the blog and keep sharing new recipes. So we were just kind of tired. By the time I mean, I feel like you were tired. Okay, fine. I okay. drafted our Thanksgiving menu like in September. So <laughs> I feel like really what we wanted was like, what we typically want are like the classic spread. Yeah, so there's, there's no Chinese food on our Thanksgiving There's rarely any innovation. I would say we definitely post it for the on the blog because you know my mom is one of the people who grew up being like eh, I don't really care about Thanksgiving I don't really like the taste of anything so we'll do like kind of more fusion inspired recipes with that in mind and we have a pretty delicious like gluten-free sticky rice stuffing that we like when you know Sarah's sister-in-law is gluten-free so we cook it for her um but yeah I mean I just say it's like kind of a loaded question because it's one of those funny things where it's like you, you I feel like I almost feel like sheepish when I'm like, yeah, there's nothing really Chinese about 
<laughs> well, I think that it's, it totally depends on who we have over for Thanksgiving. Yes. So if it's like, if it's just us and like my dad's sister's family, so our cousins and my dad's sister and her husband, um, you know, we are, it's an American Thanksgiving. We're making turkey, we're making stuffing, we're making mac and cheese, we're making, you know, sweet potato casserole. And, but if, if like extended family are coming and that includes the elders who, you know, they, they're expecting, you know, they're expecting rice, maybe a fish to be there. Um, one time our great grandmother, who is now 104, she came to Thanksgiving and she brought with her, her own homemade, uh, pickled mustard greens, her, a chicken, and she like cooked her own dinner. Like she was like, I'm not eating any of this Thanksgiving stuff. Like I'm just gonna cook this like uh, chicken with pickled mustard, which is delicious. We have the recipe on the blog if you're interested. Um, and she's like, Yeah, I'm just gonna eat this with rice. <laughs> Thank you. So, so just, just uh, by the way, you can, um, if you want, you can stop sharing screen, and I'll make you the featured people. Oh. Um, Spotlight for everyone. So I, I, I did not have traditional. I took my turkey to a Chinese barbecue restaurant and had them prepare the turkey. That's a and... brilliant idea, Kathy. Holy crap! <laughs> <laughs> well, my 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 nieces are the big traditionalists, and they were not coming this year. So I felt I could get away with doing something very different. And then I made Mandarin pancakes. I made oh, the ginger wow. garlic. I had the hoisin sauce. I brought egg rolls from that restaurant because they're really good. And, you know, I have enough things to deal with. But I still put cranberry sauce. I still had a jello mold, you know. And then I made, uh, there was other things that I probably had forgotten. But for dessert, there had, this was, a, I think, like Atlas Obscura back in September had this recipe floating around of the dessert that was served to the astronauts from Apollo 11 when they had at a White House dinner, and that's what I did. <laughs> Normally, it's, it's it's the traditional dinner. Um, so I, 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 I that the day after Thanksgiving, it's always turkey congee. Turkey, yes. so it's oh, yeah. with rice, um, with the turkey carcass. That is what we do with the turkey carcass every single year. And it's my mom's, like, favorite. So, like, the next, so... After Thanksgiving, after all the plates are cleared, like the first order of business is like getting somebody has to make turkey, turkey carcass into the pot. The getting the turkey carcass into the pot, adding the water, adding the rice, and getting that going so that it's ready for the next morning with a little bit of cilantro, scallion, ginger, ginger. and pepper. Delish. It sounds great. I love it. Um, okay, I'm going back in time to read them in chronological order. Is home cooking very different than restaurant cooking? I think this is an interesting question from Jeffrey because, I mean, in in the world of Chinese food, I would say there are things that are the same and there are things that are different. Like there are certain dishes where you just expect it to taste as good regardless of anything. So like, I think like, tomato with egg stir fry comes to mind like that's a dish that just like doesn't really change it's not like in america i don't think or at you least i have find that you don't find that in restaurants around you here. Can, like chill restaurants yeah you can what do you mean here or yeah, here 
here in oh, China. I mean, I mean in China. Oh, uh, just as a control, I guess. Um, but yeah, like there are certain dishes like that where it's not like in. It's not like there's like an eleven Madison Park where it's like deconstructing the egg with tomato. At least I don't think there should be. But that's just my. <laughs> But um, I think there are moments where there is more of like restaurant execution of like what you would expect, like Chinese restaurants, like kind of what we were talking about, like those more refined venues for dining, like there's a lot more care taken with the presentation of the food and they might add like more sugar and like to make it glossier and more tasty, like what you would expect, honestly, restaurants to do, right? They kind of like amp up everything, whereas at home, it's a more practical game. There are also, I think, dishes that are that show up at home that don't show up in restaurants. Um, and the reason for that might be like, you know, they take a little bit more time to make or it's just that like maybe it's like that particular dish is seen as like the domain of like the home kitchen and not something that you would eat at a restaurant. So like I'm trying to think of an example, um, like those steam, like the steamed pork patty that we showed in that slide from the meat chapter. You generally don't see that. Uh, it's a Cantonese dish, but if you go to a Cantonese restaurant, you're generally not going to find that on the menu. Um, that's something that either you have to make or your mom or your grandma or your dad has to make it for you. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that there are just like some dishes that have that kind of like homey DNA that uh, that don't usually show up at restaurants. Yeah. So the next question is, how does one deal with wok cooking on a home range? It seems like the heat is never high enough. So yes, we feel you. That is like, yeah. that is and a big challenge. As you can see, I have an extremely regular stove. Yes. Yeah. So, so at, at our parents' house, they have a range that actually has a wok burner in the center. And um, I think the wok burner reaches like some like 18,000 BTU or something like that. Nowhere near restaurants still. Yes. Yeah, still nowhere near but what a restaurant hot. would get, but better than, um, you know, what you might see on an average stove. And my sister and I both live in apartments and our stoves are very normal. Um, and I would say that uh, for me personally, what I do is, um, so I bought a, it's a cast iron wok ring. Um, and I just take the cast iron grate off my stove and I replace it with this wok ring. And actually it, it, it's, it's not the perfect fit. It's like not actually it's fine. It's fine. It does the job. Um, <laughs> But the wok like just sits a lot closer to the flame when I use that. And um, I think if you don't want to like kind of go crazy with like getting different equipment or replacing your wok rates or, or your stove grates or anything like that, what you can do is just be really mindful of a couple things. So um, I think what we're talking about, by the way, just to like preface this, I think what we're talking about right now is like this concept of wok hay, of getting that sort of like wok seared, uh, the breath of the wok flavor into your food, um, which it creates this really savory, uh, kind of like almost like a what you get from grilled, essence. like yeah, like yeah. grilled food, um, but not quite. It's like hard to explain it. It's but its own thing. You definitely, if you've been to a really good Chinese restaurant, you've definitely tasted it. Um, so the idea behind that is like, it is extreme high heat cooking. And so how do you achieve extreme high heat cooking with a regular stove? So one way, like I said, was just like getting this, somehow getting your wok closer to that 
heat source, but also um, what you can do is you can cook in smaller batches. So if you're not kind of putting too much, too many ingredients into your wok at once, it won't cool off the surface of your wok as, as quickly. And so you'll kind of retain more of that heat and you're not, you know, what, what can happen if you put too much stuff in your wok at once is that you get this kind of like almost like a soup, like you get like a lot of liquid coming out of the vegetables. It really cools down that wok. And then you're kind of like the wok, hey, like magic is over. Yeah. Um, so cooking with less stuff, preheating the wok um, really well is key. So Patience. You, you want your, first of all, you want to use a carbon steel wok because nonstick woks, it's not safe to heat them super hot. Um, so get a carbon steel wok and heat it until it's starting to like smoke. Like you'll see like little wisps of smoke coming off of the, the metal. A dry wok. A dry, dry wok, yes. No and then oil. and then once it's smoking, then you add oil and um and you'll see even more smoke come up because like the oil is like hitting, it's like at its smoke point. Um and that's that's when you have to move quickly. That's when you have to you add the food stuff goes quick and that's why like a lot of Chinese a lot of our recipes are like focused on like mise en place like getting you like where you need to be and like there's also like you know we point out like when there are like time pockets where you can like prep like the last couple of things or whatever um one hack that I like because the thing about the wok is like yes it's the high heat but like in a restaurant setting the flame that's like coming up from the wok is so huge that you get the like the flames like licking the fat and like maybe ever people have heard of like Kenji Lope, uh, J. Kenji Lopez Alt's like kind of unique hack, which is like a flame, a, a blowtorch blow on the food that kind of mimics the effect. But what I do, which is much more lo-fi, is like when I have the food, you first off, if you're feeling ambitious, you kind of can like test your tossing game <laughs> with your walk. If you're not so ambitious, which I am not always, is Sometimes I honestly just tilt the food so that it's like hovering so that the flame is just like hovering right at the edge. Like nothing's spilling. I don't want to be, I don't want anybody to have any accidents. Like nothing's spilling, but like it kind of just, the flames lick up into the wok like it would at a restaurant. It's not as like intense as like a wok chef, like really like tossing everything like high into the air. But that's like a little hack that has worked well for me on this like tiny stove in my small wok. <laughs> <laughs> Years ago, Grace Young did a program with us, and her comment was put like like the shrimp or whatever in the dish and leave it alone for a minute. Yeah. Let it get that, you know, caramelization going. She says everybody with with, with stir fry, they just keep moving things around a little too much. Yes. There, there is that perception that like it's stir fry. It's like, oh, I have to constantly be doing it. And yeah, you kind of hurt yourself along the way. Yeah, I mean, it, right. It depends on the heat that you have, right? If you're if the flame if you're in like a restaurant kitchen, you can't really let the food sit. But if you're at home and the heat's like kind of taking a minute to get back up, then you can you can just kind of like let it sear or whatever it is that you're you're cooking. Um, mm -hmm. you let By the way, do you guys have any backyard? Um, do you do any backyard cooking? Because I've heard from some people, like from the Chinese Museum and such, there's these like really blasting yes. gas things, people like are, several are, hundred thousand BTU. Yes, people are super dedicated to the the like pursuit of wok <laughs> and they they buy these 
outdoor wok burners that are propane powered. Um, and those get really hot. Um, and we haven't gotten one yet. Um, we should. We talked about it's it. Time. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it's time for our kind of like outdoor, like walk tent. <laughs> like, you know, just put up like a one of those like tents and then just like put one of those walk, uh, maybe like a little plastic table for your ingredients and put one of those. Um, Get a rig. Yeah. yeah. I think that we were definitely thinking about that. Um, so the next question is, why doesn't Chinese cuisine offer dessert? So, so I want to I want to address one semantic point. Oh. So I would say what I would interpret the question and kind of like kind of brings home the point of the presentation is right. It's like why don't Chinese restaurants in America typically offer much of a dessert, right? Because in Chinese cuisine, there's loads of desserts. We just don't see them here that often, or it depends on where you go, or it's mostly the domain of like a Chinese bakery or like a little cafe that like specializes in it or something. But like, yes, totally hear you. At an average Chinese restaurant, you get the little freebie fruit platter at the end. Or um, here in New York, we go to Wu's Wonton King and they give you this like mango pudding, like little gelatin thing, which is delicious. Um, but there's actually like loads of other Chinese desserts, like a uh Chinese dessert soups is like a very like slept on concept um it's like a hot like a hot red sweet red bean soup or like a taro sago soup with like little tapioca pearls so it exists um I would just say that I think I mean maybe I will uh you know go so far as to say that Chinese people aren't as big on sweets as they are on savory um, or the sweetness level is less, subtle, much less than it is here in our desserts here. Um, and it's, I think, um, the concept of eating something sweet at the, after a meal, isn't necessarily like a huge thing. It's not like, like if you go out to a restaurant in China and while there are sweets, there are, like my sister said, there are desserts, there are sweets. But it's definitely not like a, oh, we eat the savory food and then we eat the sweet food. <laughs> um, it's like more like, okay, like this sweet thing is something to be, to enjoy on its own maybe. Or like, you know, like it's a special time of year. We're going to make this, um, we're going to have like, a, I don't know, a sweet, uh, a sweet rice cake, like Nian Gao around, um, Chinese New Year, for example, or a mooncake around a mid-autumn festival. So, um, yeah, but like my sister said, there are um, some really delicious uh, dessert soups out there. I just vlogged one um, yesterday. Uh, so we're co we're coming out with that post soon. Um, and yeah, I think... Uh, but yeah, I do it's... think it's interesting in the ask... I don't want to put anybody on the spot or like make anybody feel bad, but I do think it is interesting in the asking of the question... The, the way that it's phrased, like, it's so easy to rely on what our personal experience is and to sort of assume that that's kind of like the standard or the norm, right? And I think that it's been a learning process for us, too, to like, also not like knee jerk to that of like, oh, nobody does that, or I've never seen that or whatever. Like, there's just, there's just so much to learn. Um, so it's, you know, been a journey for us, too. So the a question from Courtney is, uh, whenever I attempt to make a Chinese dish, I typically never have the necessary ingredients. I was wondering if you could su suggest three to four staple ingredients one should have at home. Um, 
So yes, we we actually have a post uh, about this on the blog. Um, it's it's our ten uh, essential ingredients, although it's really seven pantry ingredients. Um, and those are let's see if I can think of them off the top of my head: light soy sauce, dark soy sauce, oyster sauce, sesame oil, white pepper, uh, cornstarch, and. Did you say I said oyster? oyster. Ginger, scallion, and dark. There's one more. Shouting wine. Shouting wine, yes. Um, <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, and with those ingredients, which you can buy uh, like online at, um, you know, Poing Hong or any like umami, there's like umami cart, there's sayweed.com, there's yummybuy.com, there's justasianfood.com. There's so many of these uh, sor- online sources now. Um, with those ingredients, you can make the lion's share of recipes on our blog. Um, I would say, you know, there are, depending on what you're looking to make, you might like, you might need some, like maybe like dried shiitake mushrooms. Maybe you'll need rice vinegar. Um, if you can't find those ingredients, um, we can, you know, we can talk about substitutes. Um, Chinese light and dark soy sauce are really important. It's pretty important to have both. If you can only find regular soy sauce, it, you will find that like in a dish that has like maybe like a rich amber color, you're not getting the same, you're not getting the same color, um, at home, but the flavor will be, the flavor will still be like close, uh, to what it, it is meant to be. Um, for Shaoxing wine, you can substitute a dry cooking sherry, um, that also works well if you're gluten-free because Shaoxing wine is fermented with a little bit of wheat. So um, if you have a gluten allergy, dry sherry works great. Um, and with oyster sauce, if you have a shellfish allergy, oyster sauce is pretty like available now, I, I would yeah. say. Um, but if you have like a shellfish allergy, they make vegetarian versions um, that are flavored with mushrooms. Um and yeah, sesame oil, just make sure you're, you're buying toasted sesame oil. So it should have like a dark color to it. Um, toasted sesame oil is brown and raw sesame oil looks like vegetable oil. So you'll know the difference. Somebody asked like, when do you use one versus the other? And honestly, this is like a funny consequence of writing the book because like our editor insisted on like saying, clarifying like toasted sesame oil. And we were like sesame oil <laughs> because honestly, I, we've never I didn't even know it came used yeah. untoasted sesame oil. Um, it's not to say that it's not uh, important, but I, that's just something that like I need to do my, more like research on to understand like how that's used, but like, it's not a dominant um ingredient in Chinese cooking usually you have like the toasted sesame oil and then uh sesame paste um uh this question from Nicholas um recipe recipe development questions do you use style guides and how hard do you work on your food photography um so I, so we did, photo, we photographed the recipes uh, for, we photograph everything on, on our blog and we also photograph the recipes in the book. Um, I'm the photographer, my sister and my mom are the stylists and, or the food stylists and like prop photography people. assistant. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I would say we work fairly hard on it. Um, it's like kind of like one of the most stressful aspects of 
Um, any kind of like blogging or cooking shoot is just like making the food look good is actually kind of challenging sometimes. I think we've learned a lot of tips and tricks over the years. Um, you know, you definitely want to get to it really quickly. Like when, when the food comes out of the wok or comes out of the pot or like we played it, it's like, we're running to yeah. the, to, to get it, uh, <laughs> photographed because, um, you know, when the food sits around, it starts to look like a little bit it tired. It loses its it vitality. Loses, it's right. It loses its like just cooked vitality. So, um, we definitely, uh, I would say we work pretty hard. Yeah. I mean, the hilarious thing is like a, it's not hilarious, but it's like a revelation to me of like food stylists is like a job. Like that's like one person's job on like a cookbook shoot is just to style the food um, and like come with the props and the whole thing. So yeah, we're kind of all like wearing many hats in that sense. Um, a, a great question, honestly, and if anybody has suggestions, would love to hear them of really good Chinese restaurants any recommendations for same in the greater Chicago area? Speaking of really good Chinese restaurants. So we've been to Chicago. I actually wrote a Chicago travel post on the blog that was like amazing and hilarious because there was a huge debate in the comments about like the Chicago style pizza relative to the like Italian beef sandwich relative to the hot dogs and the whole thing. Um Honestly, it was tough for us to find uh, Chinese restaurants. I feel like we, in that moment, we probably fell prey to the Google algorithms because I think the most popular one was Ming Hin, which has like multiple locations. They I liked Ming Hin. I liked it. Well, I, I liked it too, but it just didn't seem like there was a ton else that was right. like super popular and notable. Um, if you come to Chicago again, we could maybe help you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah. At least I'm a. I could be a resource. How's that? I can, I can even treat you. <laughs> right, sister-in-law lives in Chicago, so I go there fairly, like at least once a year. So, um, yeah, yes, we, I would yeah, love we, these we <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. But yeah, Mayhem is is very good, yeah, and and their uh, Malaiko like of their dim sum selection, it's like a sweet cake, like a brown sugar cake, delicious. One of the best I've ever had. I also ordered a beef with bitter melon there that was like really good. Yeah, they it was do very well. satisfying. But I will say it's uh, speaking mm. of food ways, all of the food there we noticed was sweeter than what you find in the New York restaurants. And I think the hunch is, is that it's like a little bit more of the Midwest taste. I think they cater more to the like it's not like garishly sweet, but it is a little bit more sweet. Just a little touch like everything. More sweet. Yeah. yeah. Um, a question from Penelope, what brand of oyster sauce do you recommend? Lee Kum Kee premium oyster sauce. So Lee Kum Kee makes multiple oyster sauce. Uh, Lee Kum Kee is actually, if you didn't know, the inventor of oyster sauce. So that brand, um, the founder of that brand actually founded the brand on oyster sauce. Um, and they make various versions of it. Uh, they make a, a regular version and they make a premium. The premium will cost like a maybe two or three dollars more than the regular, and it is worth buying their premium version. Um, and I hear a lot of people uh, recommending another oyster sauce called Mega Chef, which is, um, you know, it's a little bit more like a little bit more expensive. Um, we found that Mega Chef oyster sauce is great for 
like using oyster, if you're using it as a condiment, like if you're pouring it over um, like blanched greens or something like that, Mega Chef works great. It's a little bit, it's actually quite a bit sweeter. It's more mild. It doesn't have as much oyster flavor. And it's more pourable, which also makes it better as a condiment. Um, But I would say for cooking, Lee Kum premium oyster sauce always. It's king. And you'll see at the, if you go to a Chinese grocery store, that's one of the sauces where there's very few competitors because there's just no competing. I mean, I will say else. Did you say this already? It's the one with the woman in a boat on the bottle, not the panda. Yeah, not the panda. The 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 women in the boat. That's the the bottle that you want. <laughs> They're both Lee Kum Kee, and the yeah. panda one is fine. But also, <laughs> Lee Kum Kee does make if you are gluten free. Um, they make a gluten free oyster sauce, and that is a green bottle with a panda on it. <laughs> so that's another another point. And I think that's. Oh, there's, oh, oh, there's one. Okay, one more question from Nicholas. When writing recipes, do you default to portions for four-person families, or does it vary depending on the dish? Also, do you all contribute on a single dish, or does one person volunteer to help someone out on something that they're playing with? You want to take the first part? I'll take the second part. Yes. So I would say that when we first started, we were defaulting to four. Now we're probably defaulting between four to five because Sarah got married. Lol. Um, but yeah, and that's why in our recipes, we have like a slider to be able to multiply the serving. So if you're cooking for two or if you're cooking for six, um, but yeah, usually I think when I develop recipes, at least I usually have like four or five people in mind and that's it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's partially, or sometimes recipes that are, there are recipes that feel like it's like, oh, this is for a single serving. Like this is like, you know, maybe like, um, like simpler recipes, like my mom's like, uh, mixed rice that is like very much like a kind of emergency dinner like if you don't have anything in your uh fridge and you're like what do I eat right um so she made that as like a single recipe or a single person serving that you can multiply and I think you kind of approach thinking through quantities the way that you would think through like ordering at a Chinese restaurant like when you kind of say like oh like is one dish enough uh, or do I need a few dishes? And usually, like, sometimes we'll get feedback of like, oh, this wasn't enough food. Um, but, you know, I think the Chinese sort of classic way of kind of crafting the, the mealtime table is like a handful of dishes. So you kind of say like, oh, you know, I'll have a mapo tofu plus this, this, and rice. Um, and if you only want to make mapo tofu then you kind of say like okay like maybe I'll just like bump up the quantities a little bit to make sure I have enough and the second part of the question is do you all contribute on a single dish or does one person volunteer to help when someone with something someone else is playing with okay so I would say that our process is generally and this is like as much to keep the peace as anything um to each individually work on our own recipe um and we are it's it's like, it is very much like my sister's recipe or it's my recipe. And sometimes like we have to remind each other, this is my recipe. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, because, you know, I think that we all like, we all individually have ideas and uh, we all bring uh, those to the table. Um, and how it goes is like, we each individually develop the recipe. Um, we'll ask each other questions sometimes of like, as we're developing, like, oh, what do you think of this? Or should I do mm-hmm. it like this? And then we cook it. All four of us tries 
the recipe and then we'll give our feedback at that point. Um, and sometimes like it is just like a, that's great. Tastes great. Like no notes, no comments. And, um, I think when you get that, when you get that kind of like feedback for any of us, it's like really exciting because you know that you nailed it. Mm -hmm. Um, so rare, but yeah, well, not rare, but it's a cutest path to get there. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so can I finish with a couple of questions? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'm going to embarrass myself. But you see this carton of eggs? Yes. These are salted eggs. Mm. These were made, ooh, back in March. Okay. Maybe okay. February. This was when eggs were still cheap. The good old days. The ones we would like to remember fondly. Um, <laughs> and then I kind of forgot about them. In fact, when you guys brought up the duck eggs, then I, I ran and unearthed <laughs> these wonders. Some of them look a little discolored. Look like that one right there. Yeah. Uh, this one here at the end. Some of them look okay. So um, what do you think? I should probably just throw away the ones that have the dark color because that's probably nasty, nasty. But the other ones, do you think I should just give it a shot and see what happens? Are they? I know, I know. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm actually putting myself on the spot. Are they cooked or were they hard boiled or are they? No, these were raw salted, as I recall. I'd have to go back to look at what I was. Do you do? Do you have one of these on your? Because I don't remember right now who I borrowed the idea from. But in any case. Yeah, you have a salted duck egg recipe on the blog. Um, and I will say that when they're cooked, they do store longer than when they're raw. So I would say I'm not positive on the shelf life of a raw coffee. <laughs> March a long time. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm kind of inclined to gently put it in the garbage and hope that something doesn't crush it and we have a stinky situation so actually okay kathy real talk so when <laughs> real life <laughs> so, so i just made a recipe using salted duck eggs so when you crack the egg open it shouldn't smell bad it should just smell it should just have this like almost minerally smell of like the egg but just like like you know when you crack open a regular egg there's not much smell but right. when you crack open a salted duck or duck egg I guess in this case um of what I'm thinking of there's just a slight change in aroma it's not like it's really like different so like if you cracked it open and it smells like even remotely bad then like definitely like abort mission <laughs> but if it if it doesn't smell too bad, you could try cooking it and eat a small amount, but like, I don't know, for your safety, maybe not. <laughs> I, I could treat it like a poisonous mushroom. You could taste and then yes. immediately spit it all out. So you, you got the sense, but not the depth, you know? By the way, somebody did ask, what's the shelf life for century eggs? Oh my gosh. Like, like honestly, I like, like it's, I, it's like, Actually, Ma has been like, mm, like, yeah, we should throw these away. So I, I think um, they're never on the box. I've eaten salted duck eggs after almost a year. Okay, yeah. thanks, Shirley. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that's like some of these things, like honestly, like they are preserved to like, 
like I'm thinking of like fermented black, like salted black beans, like those don't go bad. As long as you like always handle them with a clean utensil and you keep them in the fridge and you keep them in the package, they just like don't go bad. They're just, I mean, you can keep them for probably like three years without them going bad. Um, with, uh, with eggs, century eggs, um, honestly, like, I don't know, like I would say maybe like a year. I think a year is safe. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's one of those like eyes and ears things, you know, like as you eat more century eggs, you sort of start to know what it should look like. I will say sometimes you cut open the egg, the yolk is very firm. Sometimes you cut open the egg and it's more gooey. Both are fine. But um, yeah, like I think like if if the white looks weird, like the white should look like dark colored gelatin. Should look like blackish brown gelatin. And if it looks like mottled or cloudy or weird, like I would say that's that's when I would start to be like, eh, let me go get some new ones. Steve asks, would Andrew Zimmern eat them? I Andrew Zimmern would definitely eat them. <laughs> and actually, hilariously, uh, when we were younger, we, we on an episode of Fear Factor, century <laughs> so eggs funny. were like on Fear Factor <laughs> as like the, the gross thing that they had to eat. And I literally was watching, like my mom was watching it too. Like the contestants were like, their eyes were watering. They were like about to throw up. I'm like, my mom's like, just give me some soy sauce. Like I'll win the $50,000. Like, <laughs> Fine. <laughs> um, so okay, and just one last thing. So the the yeast balls, yes. these I happened to purchase here in Chicago. But the first time I encountered them was at a Burmese market in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Wow. And they were selling it two ways. You got you could buy the yeast balls and make it yourself at home, wow. or you could buy the already processed rice. Uh-huh. And the the rice was nicely flavored, and there was like the liquid, which was sort of like shousing wine mm-hmm. without the salt. Yep. Um. So this has been. So I I occasionally make some, but I was at a Christmas party last week and gave out a few of these, and people were like, "I read what you wrote." <laughs> good, you know, like it was sort of sinister there. This was fun. I hope you had a good time. Yeah, yeah, this was really fantastic. Fun. Love this conversation. It's great. Yeah, yeah, and we all we all learned something, you know, <laughs> which is what I like. And I do love Chinese food. You know, that's like, you know, I'll sometimes do the, you know, I'm going to look for Chinese food, but here's what I have at home at the moment. Yes. Yeah, whatever pops up, that's that's what we make that day. Exactly. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Thank you so much, yeah. everyone. It's been like really great conversation and like love all the questions and the little comments in the chat are so awesome. And, and our, our, like, a couple of people who were bravely cameras on love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so we'd be, you know, if you're in Chicago sometime, you know, we can help you pick some restaurants. Maybe love even it. meet you if you'd like. Yeah, no, Kathy, we will be reaching out. (laughs) Terrific. Well, Merry Christmas, if that's okay. Do you do Christmas? Yes, it's fine. (laughs) Great. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and good luck with everything, everybody. All right. Thanks so much. Happy holidays, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Just looking to end it. Thanks again.
Oh, I guess we're not quite over. Well, I'll make it over. Good evening, everyone. This is Catherine Lambrecht, Chicago Foodways Roundtable. When my mom comes up to me and is like, I want to make this like... That's like a DNA of the blog has always been like that storytelling and that like exchange between the generations. And that's really like where what we find also personally um, most rewarding too. Um, and that's definitely something we carried on into the creation of our book. Um, <laughs> this is a very gratuitous page, just some like <laughs> features of... <laughs> <laughs> the features that we've been uh that we've had over the past couple of years um that you know if you're curious about us you can read after this but I won't say more than that um this is our new cookbook which is you know extremely exciting to write a cookbook with your family and have it be like a bestseller no less um it's called the walks of life recipes to know and love from a Chinese American family so what really we really wanted to do with the book, and we'll sort of like get into how this relates to the the food ways of it all, is make it an extension of our blog, but go a little bit deeper on the the family stories aspect to really show how all of our sort of unique perspectives kind of came to be and how that informed our approach to Chinese home cooking. Uh, whoops. So today, I mean, so now we're getting into the crux of what our presentation today is about, and it's that um, Chinese home cooking right now is in a really exciting stage. I think that it's at this, uh, it's it's really evolved in the last 10 years that we've been doing this, um, even. And um, I think that, you know, now I, I think we have this confluence of um, Chinese American people like us the millennial generation or younger generations who are realizing that it's really important to learn these recipes that our parents prepared for us growing up. And then also non-Chinese folks who are just love the food and are interested in learning about it. And I think we're seeing more and more people who are cooking these recipes at home than ever before and who are wanting to learn about the ingredients, wanting to learn about Chinese cooking tools. Um, and, you know, we see that in the traffic um, of our blog. And I think um, it's it's also just like th this idea that the, I the perception of Chinese food is broadening. Um, and that's really, really exciting, right? Like, I think, um, you know, 10 years ago when we first started the blog, I remember my parents 